Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 137 with Lyme expert Armin Schwarzbach. Also, welcome with me to the studio, our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn how Dr. Schwarzbach transitioned from taking care of patients to becoming a research doctor, how the key to cure Lyme disease is to strengthen the immune system plus Lyme treatment, and how the medical community is not science-based but guideline-based. Thanks, Aurora. Also, I just want to comment on the lack of an episode last week. You may have noticed that, those of you who are the regular listeners, and I think I'm dealing with my own Lyme flare. He can't move his bicep. That's what he means. I can't use my right arm. It kind of happened overnight, which, well, that's not quite true. Like any Lyme story, I think this has a little bit of a background that I'll share with you. We put together, uh, as many of you know, we traveled to Thailand back in uh, the end of January, beginning of February this year. And while there, I got food poisoning from a food cart vendor. Oh, really? Yes. Projectile vomiting on a plane. It was very unpleasant for the rest of the passengers, not, <laughs> not just me. It was really awful, awful. Anyway, so got through that. You know, it was very short-lived. Actually, the food poisoning came on very quickly, hours after I ate. Uh, and after that really felt okay. However, I was just reading about how even one bout of food poisoning can alter your gut bacteria in a bad way. And I think that was the setup for what's happened. So ever since there, my energy levels have just been a little bit down. It was noticeable, but you know, you make excuses, right? It's the tough part of the winter. It's February up here in central New York. It's snowy. It's dark. There's a lot of stress from other things. Not getting a whole lot of rest, traveling halfway across the world twice in two weeks. So understandably, I was tired and maybe just couldn't get caught up. And then about two weeks ago, while outside coaching on a cold, damp, windy day, right? Sounds like the setup for a viral problem. My right shoulder cramped up, kind of the shoulder, pec, just the whole area, just the normal muscle cramp thing. And it was quite sore for a while. And I just thought it was muscle soreness. So I begged my wife and daughter to rub my shoulder at night and things like that and seemed to get a little bit better and then worse. And What he's not telling you is that it was so bad he wasn't sleeping. Well, no, I, I, I was sleeping. At that point, I was still sleeping. Okay. It was just annoying. No, that's that, that came toward the end of it. And then it started getting really quite bad, and then I had trouble sleeping. And so that I start to wonder, okay, now not only is, am I having muscle cramps, but it's now finally pinching a nerve. So that was my self-diagnosis. And then it got 
really bad. So I had Aurora, I brought Aurora into the office and she did some cupping on me. I don't know if you've seen those pictures on the internet, but we did some pretty serious cupping and even a little bit of wet cupping, which is, which is, (laughs) which is a euphemism for a Chinese treatment. And things improved actually the next day. It started up on some Chinese lime herbs. I had my suspicions at that point. It's like, hmm, this all started on a windy, cold day. Maybe it's something viral akin to uh, Bell's palsy, except happening in my shoulder and arm instead of in my face. Or maybe it's something like shingles. So I started some herbs, and the next day felt actually pretty terrific. My spirits lifted. My arm felt a ton better. And then you stood and then he had another practice and he stood out in the wind for another hour. You had to bring that part up (laughs) that it was true. And that night my arm was killing me and I woke up the next morning unable to use it. The thing would just not move. So at that point, my wife says, you are going to urgent care. And we did. And the initial diagnosis was, well, we can't help you here. This is something neurological. So they sent us over to the ER at which the ER said, well, we don't think this is neurological. We think you have a torn rotator cuff. So, sounding like many Lyme stories, right? Then we go to the orthopedic, and he does a quick review of the movement or lack of movement in my arm and where the pain is, so forth and so on. It says, this is absolutely not a rotator cuff problem. It's neurological, and it's very strange neurological. Good luck. Well, it wasn't quite that bad, but that's pretty much what he said. He said, you need to start investigating this with your primary care. So I've started the Cowden protocol. We've done some more cupping on my shoulder, which actually has helped. It makes things really sore the day after or the same day of of doing the cupping. Last night was particularly bad, but this morning is uh, significantly better. So I will keep you updated and let you know uh, if I'm ever to use my arm again. I hope so. (laughs) That's the plan. Yeah, it's the plan over here, too. Alrighty, so that's a long introduction to let you know where we are and why we missed last week. Things were a little exciting around the Rippy Farm. However, let's get into why you're listening and the interview with Armin Schwarzbach. This man is absolutely fascinating. He runs a lab, a diagnostic lab in Germany. And I know some of the local LLMDs, Lyme literate medical doctors, use him to make diagnosis. They send the samples all the way to Germany because he does such a spectacular job. It's a fascinating, fascinating interview. So, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Dr. Armin Schwarzbach? Dr. Armin Schwarzbach is a specialist for laboratory medicine and infectious diseases who is from Augsburg, Germany. He has been working in the field of diagnostic tests for Borrelia burgdorferi and co-infections for more than 20 years. Having acquired a broad range of expertise, Dr. Schwarzbach recognized a problem of insensitivities and lacking standardization with regard to Borrelia burgdorferi the antibody ELISA and immunoblot tests. He has tested more than 20,000 patients for different tick-borne diseases and multiple infections. Thanks, Aurora. And before we jump right in, if any of you have experience with neurological Lyme and uh, any treatment recommendations, please send them along to me at mckay.rippy at gmail.com. I'd appreciate any comments you would have. All right. Here's our interview with Dr. Armin Schwarzbach. Dr. Schwarzbach, this is McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. Yes. Hello. How are you? Quite well. 
Good. <laughs> Your background is as a medical doctor, and then you began getting into the research field. So what what prompted that switch from being a, a, a doctor to really a lab person? My career is a little different uh, than normal medical doctors. Um, I worked in science uh, at uh, Hoechst, um, which is uh, Aventis, uh, in the scientific world in the 80s, early 80s in biochemistry. And then I studied pharmacy for one year. And after that, I decided to study medicine because there was no relation with humans. And I like patients and to care for humans and not just for science. So then I qualified as a medical doctor, which in Germany needs around six up to seven years, the qualification. After that, I worked uh, in hospital, internal medicine, cardiology, oncology, infectiology, uh, gastroenterology, nephrology for two years. Um, but that was not satisfying for me. And uh, I uh, did the qualification as a laboratory doctor, laboratory specialist, um, which means another six years of qualification in microbiology, immunology, endocrinology, um, and also clinical chemistry, hematology. So after that, I decided uh, to leave the field of science and also to leave the field of medical doctor uh, to qualify more as laboratory specialist and to work in this field. Nevertheless, I have uh, two different qualifications, medical doctor, so I'm allowed to do therapies with patients, and on the other hand, I'm allowed to do also laboratory qualification, laboratory analysis, and parts of science. That's quite the combination and background of experience. And that really set you up well for Lyme disease. When did you get interested in diagnosing Lyme disease? I got interested in uh, tick testing in 2001 or something like that. But the first test I did for Lyme disease were in the early 90s. We had an IFA test, but not Western blots that time. But I didn't recognize that Lyme disease uh, was such a big uh, threat for patients uh, with the tick bites. So I started in 2001 to test ticks and um, for Borrelia and viruses. And after that, I found more and more infected ticks. And I said to myself, oh, that could be a problem. Uh, if you have so many infected ticks in Germany, around 30, up to 50% are infected with Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, I decided, okay, what about the patients? And then I had in 2005, my uh, AHA event, there was a patient with multiple sclerosis and patient was blind and uh, walking disabilities and uh, occupational disabilities and uh, all this stuff, sensitivity, neck pain. And I said, oh, MS is MS and cannot be Lyme disease. But um, I started to do the uh, T-cell testings, which uh, named the Elispot test. And 
I tried it with this MS patients, and I was very surprised that this MS patient had also activities in the early spot for Lyme disease. I said, oh, what's that? Could it be now MS, or is it Lyme disease, or is it both, or is MS maybe Lyme disease? What is it? I, I was not so clear. And then the doctor, the therapist, called me of this patient, the GP that time, and he asked me exactly the same question. Oh, I mean, could it be maybe Lyme disease or also neuroborreliosis or something like that? I said, mm, the testing is positive. Yes, why not try to treat the patient with antibiotics? And the patient was treated and the patient was cured from MS. So I said to myself, wow, but wait, what's you going can't, on here? Yeah, MS you can't cure, though. <laughs> yes, yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. That was a time when I came to the point, I said, MS is not curable. What's the hell? I, I've learned at university, MS is MS, and it's it's completely independent from Lyme disease. Lyme disease is an outstanding illness. It's not MS, but this patient was cured. Yeah. The patient was cured for uh, 15 years now. So I said, I cured uh, MS patients. No university has teach me it could be Lyme disease. Yes. Now, what is, actually, let me back up a little bit here. So when you were testing these ticks initially, what other co-infections were you finding in Germany? In Germany, we uh, find uh, a lot of co-infections, the same uh, like in USA. We find lots of Bartonella, up to 8% in the ticks. Uh, we find Babesia, we find Trichetsia, we find Ehrlichia anaplasma, more anaplasma, anaplasma phagocytophilum. That's a really big issue. We have uh, lots of uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients, up to 30% are infected uh, with uh, anaplasma, anaplasmosis. Um, so uh, anaplasma is, I think, the main co-infection in Germany. But we have all four uh, co-infections in the ticks, like in USA, the same. And let's get a little philosophical here. What what are the limitations on testing, the current testing, and then kind of where is testing heading with with Borrelia, Borreliosis, and and these other tick-borne infections? Yeah, that was the next uh, shock in my laboratory understanding, or what I have learned from uh, good education. Um, the point is that I trusted the Borrelia ELISA. I thought, okay, it's like in HIV infections, a patient with Lyme disease must have a positive Borrelia ELISA, IgG or IgM or both, whatever. And then I did a study with 50 patients with chronic Lyme disease symptoms, really typical symptoms, arthritis and uh, musculoskeletal problems, uh, sensitivity problems, neurological problems. So all bitten by a tick, chronic story, chronic fatigue, all the stuff. So and then I tested 50 and I found just 60% had positive Western blots which is the confirmation test, but just 30 or 40% had positive ELISA. And my complete world broke down in my understanding because I have learned that all patients with Lyme disease must have antibodies. I was shocked. And then I tested different test producers. We have in Germany, I think, 20 different test producers for Lyme antibodies, all certified test producers. And it was like rolling the dice. I, I, I rolled the dice, 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 dice. It, it was horrible. 
different results. It's uh, no result was matching. Negative, positive, ELISA, no, anybody is positive, borderline, oh, whatever you want. So I have the data in, in my file. So, and I, I said, something is going wrong here. Where's the standardization of that? It's horrible. Just 60% have antibodies of chronic Lyme, of my chronic Lyme patients, and not in all test systems. I was so shocked about it. And the ELISA are just 30, 40%. Oh, heaven. And this is where I fight now for, because uh, I cannot accept that, uh, being a qualified laboratory doctor, to find that uh, other doctors tell patients I can exclude Lyme disease by negative ELISA. It's absolutely impossible. I can shout it out. Forget it. Don't believe these doctors. So where does testing need to go? Or are there tests out there now that are more accurate or what? For like today, not, so next year, year out, I know there are things in the pipeline, but what do we do right now? Yeah, the testing is going to the T-cells. You know, we completely forgot the T-cells. Huh? Uh, we had the same phenomenon in uh, tuberculosis, exactly the same. No antibodies, but these patients react on the T-cells. It's named the interferon gamma release assays, and this is exactly what I'm doing the whole day. It's the ELISPOT test. I find so many positive by ELISPOTs and negative ELISA. So why don't we test like in tuberculosis exactly the same level of the T-cell, T-cell immune responses? We completely forgot that in laboratory. And what, did you find a strong correlation between the results from the T-cell tests and uh, the clinical symptoms? Absolutely. This is my daily job. Uh, I have own patients here in my laboratory. I'm advisor for different other therapists and diagnosing doctors and laboratories, also for some governments. So by my history, and I, I can just postulate, uh, please look at the T-cell testings. Look at the early spots. Uh, look at the T-cells. What are they doing? These are the activity markers, not the B-cells. B-cells are antibodies. They can be there or cannot be there. They can be boosted or not be boosted. So forget about the B-cell uh, your response. Please do the T-cells. T-cells are the same Elispot testing. And can any laboratory do that, or does it a specialty lab test? No, no, no. These tests are all uh, certified. You can buy these tests as a being laboratory doctor. You are allowed, or laboratories can buy these tests. They're independent test producers. They are uh, under control of authorities and governments, and so you can buy the test. So each laboratory can do these testings. But you need experience. It's not just doing an easy ELISA. You need a good personal staff. You need equipment. You need infrastructure, you need accreditation in laboratory, what we have uh, reached now. So it's very important to have a very good good uh, team around you. So it's not just something you can throw in a machine and get a number back out? No, no. The time is not uh, the same like we had the development in chemistry or hematology. Now everything is automized, but there are some steps we can automize. But it's not, it's, it's more handmade tests, you know, but also with the first Borrelia Western blot, uh, it was hand, or it, or it is handmade. So this is more the, my technical assistants, they like that to work more with the hand and not to control a machine working for yourself. So will you describe the T cell test? Are they looking for bands, uh, like a Western blot under the microscope? What are they looking for? 
No, um, Eli Spot, it's named the Spot, and uh, Eli means E-L-I. It's, uh, it's the ELISA technique behind that, too. It's a technique, not the antibodies are behind it, but the lymphocyte testings. And um, you have also a reader, and you find spots. And spots means um, this is a complex uh, of a color and of a lymphocyte which reacted against some antigens on wells. And these, on these wells, you can put different antigens. So I do a lot of testings also for uh, other pathogens like Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, Eosinia, Chlamydia, uh, EBV, CMV, and herpes simplex virus. So this test uh, you can do for a lot of other viruses and bacteria, and also tuberculosis. Okay, so it's a sample can come in and you can run a test for yes, quite a few yes, different yes. things all at once. Yes. And sample has to come in, but it has to be a stabilized. Uh, that's the next uh, tricky situation. You cannot just send uh, one sample blood uh, around the world. You need uh, special tubes for it. And in these tubes, there's a special stabilization material which stabilizes the lymphocytes up to three or four days. And then you can send around the world. Interesting. And then in terms of, we have to bring this up, in terms of, uh, expense. Is it comparable with other tests? Yes, the expenses are similar to a Western blood test. It uh, depends how many antigens you choose. You can do the test around 140 euro. So Western blood uh, is similar, or let me say 180 pounds, uh, sorry, one, uh, um, uh, it's uh, US dollar, 180 US dollar. So it's similar price. It's, um, and the antigens, interestingly, are the same. We are using the Western blots. Interesting. Now, how come this testing hasn't just taken the world by storm? What's, what's holding you? Because I talk to scientists like you or doctors like you who have gone through the looking glass. Now, that's a British allusion to mm. Alice in Wonderland. And they see the world completely differently. You had your aha moment. Mm. What? What holds? It's science, right? If, if one test works and one doesn't, it's very simple. Use the test that works. What's holding the world back? Yeah, the world is ruled by guidelines or so-called guidelines. And guidelines are no guidelines. They are just recommendations. And these so-called guidelines or better recommendations, they say we are based on high evidence-based level on antibody testings. But the point is, uh, there is not evidence-based enough literature to justify to test by Borrelia elizae and uh, to find in each uh, Lyme patient uh, Borrelia antibodies. That's the point. And that means also the case definitions are wrong. Um, the point is, if you don't accept chronic Lyme symptoms, you will not accept uh, chronic Lyme test results. We will say each test result is unspecific. But you can do that in each illness. If you have a kidney failure and you will not accept the kidney failure, you will say the creatinine, which is a clinical chemistry parameter, is also false positive, which can be by some other effects, by macro creatine kinase. That's also possible. But on the other hand, um, we are, have to accept uh, the diagnosis of chronic Lyme patient, uh, symptoms, so the patient is telling you, and that's the point. It's not accepted by universities. So in universities, they don't see chronic Lyme patients because they don't accept them. They accept uh, stage one or two, 
for example, the Bulsarest, they accept, uh, they accept the Bell's palsy, they accept acute neuroborreliosis, they accept acute um, arthritis, but they don't accept chronic arthritis. So if you don't accept chronic arthritis, uh, you do the wrong case definition and you don't accept uh, results like I'm doing. You say everything is false positive in this world of universities. But if you go outside this world and you find a GP, a general practitioner, oh, and he said, yes, my patient has chronic Lyme symptoms. And then he said, the result is not unspecific because it's, it's supporting my clinical diagnosis. But this is uh, the discrepancy we have between universities and also the world outside universities. Do you accept samples from all over the world? Does your lab... Yes, I have to accept because I'm a doctor and I have to follow ethical rules in Germany and I cannot uh, neglect uh, or to say I send samples away. Otherwise, I would damage maybe a patient if a patient is uh, not diagnosed. Huh? So I have to do that. Huh? I have to accept samples also without payment. Uh, but I have to accept and I have to do that. Now, if if a physician here in the States is listening to you and says, you know what, this sounds very interesting, uh, and I, I don't have access to a lab who'll do the T-cell testing here, how do they get in touch with you? Yes, we have a standardized program. Um, the doctor should contact my lab and his administration team, and we have prepared special test kits, we name it, with special cell stabilizing tubes for this Elispot test. You have to order that. Uh, the order is free of any cost. Uh, we pay the cost for the test kits and the delivery, but we need a very fast uh, delivery back because we cannot wait 10 days for analysis. We have a maximum time of uh, three days stability in the tubes of four days maximum. So we have a special contracts uh, with urgent delivery, for example, DHL, Medical Express or FedEx, and they deliver from all over the world within three days also from Australia, Singapore, Southern Africa, Canada, America, wherever you want. Uh, but it's time critical. I cannot wait five days uh, uh, till I start the anal analysis. But we have also control mechanisms. If the blood is damaged by some influencing factors, we will not analyze and we will not build a patient for it. Very interesting. Now, can we also step back here? What's, what's treatment like in Germany? Because I hear different stories in different countries, and I've interviewed some uh, patients and some physicians from the UK and Ireland, and particularly in Ireland, they say, oh, we're, we're 10, 20 years behind the U.S., and in the U.S., we're always looking at Germany and saying, oh, were, you know, we're 10, 20 years behind Germany. What's, what's treatment like in Germany, access to care and the acceptance of chronic borreliosis and other chronic uh, infections? We come back again to the guidelines, and the guidelines, they say chronic Lyme doesn't exist without any antibodies. So um, you come to the point again to the uh, bad diag diagnosis for the patients, the misdiagnosis, and so these patients get all symptomatic therapies with corticosteroids, uh, immune-suppressive remedies, painkillers, and they all have side effects, these symptomatic therapies, and they don't solve the problem because you cannot destroy Borrelia by painkiller. 
that's absolutely impossible by <laughs> or by some uh, multiple sclerosis uh, remedy. It's not possible to destroy a, a Borrelia by that. So you need antibiotics uh, first choice. And uh, the question is, how long do you need antibiotics? What are the risks? What are the side effects? What is the benefit? So you have to calculate for each patient uh, risk-benefit ratio. And there's a risk of antibiotics, but the patients also get some benefits. And then there's a struggle, how long can you do therapies? Uh, that's a difficult question. Um, I, I think um, if uh, antibiotic therapy is helpful, then you should not stop within two weeks. You should not uh, say, bacteria, I have destroyed you all, and we stop uh, in two weeks therapy. So patients are standing in the rain, and Borrelia is still uh, surviving that two-week action, and then it's horrible for the patients. They got damaged afterwards. So therapies, uh, have, they have to be such a long time, so long the patient has a benefit from that without any risk. And uh, there's a big struggle about how long you, you can do antibiotics, and also you have the problem of multi-resistant uh, bacteria uh, to get by long-term antibiotics. We don't know exactly what will happen if we use uh, too long antibiotics, but it's individualized. You, know, you cannot do a standardized therapy for a patient. Right. Here, the closest Lyme literate physician here, Dr. Stram, uh, he's about two hours away. He uses multiple antibiotics. They're using two, three, four at a time, hopefully to counteract the ability of the bacteria to adapt and survive. Uh, and it, it seems to, in some cases, have, have wonderful benefits. And then uh, in some of the chronic cases, there does seem to be a, a point of diminishing returns where then you have to look at other therapies, whether it be herbal or some of the other uh, exotic mm. therapies out there. Now, do you treat patients as well because of your MD, or are you just in the labs these days? I um, I know uh, Ronald Stern very well for years now, and uh, we are very close contact, also conference, etc. And uh, I, I I think he's doing a really great uh, job and work for his patients. Um, I'm treat I have treated thousands of patients for antibiotics myself. Uh, remember back in the 90s, I worked in infectious diseases with, with tuberculosis and malaria and a lot of infections, salmonella, yersinia, whatever you want. But uh, after that, I worked in hospitals with also hundreds of patients with antibiotics. But nowadays, I concentrate more on uh, to advise other doctors which antibiotics are the best in which infection, which risks, are, which side effects are there, what you have to control. But what, what you have t- told, it's absolutely correct. Um, we have a tendency see that we see we need uh, a combination of antibiotics, not just doxycycline. Doxycycline, oral doxycycline, you can forget in chronic Lyme disease. So it doesn't make any sense. It cannot penetrate into spinal fluid. It, it cannot penetrate into Zenovia. It has big problems. So, But the combination is more powerful. Huh? Combination therapy, I think, is one of the keys because we have a lot of co-infections in this patient. There's no patient with just Lyme disease. All have some other different co-infections, other infections. And if you come to a limit after a while, you say, okay, I treat a patient now for two, three months with antibiotics. It's quite helpful, but there are still some symptoms, 10% rest symptoms. Then I think you have to look for other reasons. And what I have found the last, uh, let me say, one and a half years, we have so many viruses. 
Yes. Virus infections, virus infections, virus infections. I found so many Coxsackie virus all over the world. Nearly every Lyme patient has Coxsackie virus infections. So with the heart-driven problems, with the arthritis, the key is not Lyme disease treatment. The key is the immune system, plus Lyme disease treatment, plus antivirals, plus herbs, plus other options. It's a, but it's individual situation. Look, if a patient eats a lot of chicken, or eggs, or mayonnaise, or ice cream, then it can get Yersinia infections. The symptoms are similar to Lyme disease. You will say, oh, I had a tick bite and I, I had some ice cream, and now I have arthritis. What is it? Is it Lyme disease? Is it Yersinia? Is it both? Or maybe is Yersinia reactivated? Was it immune-controlled condition? What about my Epstein-Barr, EBV, or CMV, HHV-6, HHVA? What about the viruses? What about the parasites? You know, This is a very complex um, theme, and I I think uh, this is really a, a, a not for all GPs to do that job. This is really where you have to do a full-time job with it. So I'm working the whole day and night, and Ronald Strummer and all whole day and night too. You cannot do it in two hours. Now I'm in a Lyme disease specialist. Okay, you can do that. But uh, what we are going is more the chronic multiple infections. That's the way for the future, plus immune support, immune system. That's the way we go, I think, so in the whole world. Yes, it it clearly is, and the complexity of it, it's it's really a whole new specialty, these chronic yes. low, I'm going to call them low grade. I mean, they're still very serious, but it's not something yes. that's going to kill you in a week. It's going to kill you yes. in 10 years, correct? Yes, now, yes, and it, and it uh, the truth is always in the middle. Uh, Lyme is misdiagnosed. But Lyme is also overdiagnosed. Huh? <laughs> so if you don't come forward with antibiotics, please think again. Could it be another reason? Or is the wrong antibiotics? Or is it the virus? Or is it a parasite? What is it? Or is it a hormonal problem? Environmental problem? Don't stuck on the antibiotics. That makes it dangerous for patients, and patients can die by that antibiotically. Yes, I think it's in speaking with lay people. We sell, we say Lyme disease, and in the back of the mind, they're thinking all these other problems. And when you speak yes. to the medical community and to the scientific community, you say Lyme disease, and they're thinking Borreliosis, and particularly Borrelia burgdorferi. Yes. And it's it's an important distinction that can't be made often enough. Uh, and and yes. this this mistranslation between the, the the lay people and scientific people, I think, is is one of the things yes. that's hampering. Uh, progress. Yes. There, there's, there's not any study in the world, believe me, not any study looking for chronic multiple infections. Right. Neither with diagnostic tests, neither or with uh, therapies. No study in the world. They all look for Lyme disease, the study, or the other study is looking for Babesia, the other study is looking for Rickettsia, but there's no combination study. So what we need is, a, a, because a, a tick is a dirty needle, it's full of different pathogens, and I think we don't have identified all of the pathogens in the ticks. Oh, we find now the Neoelichia and some other Rickettsia species, the veterinarians, they know much more than we know. Right. That, you know, that's a very interesting point because here in the States, we'll have a, a vet, uh, just a community veterinarian who's treating a dozen dogs a week for Lyme disease. And then across the street, uh, the, the GP is treating zero patients for Lyme disease. And we, we know 
that it's out there. And yet, again, you said the, the standards and the guidelines are, are preventing or the blinders that prevent these GPs from, from seeing it. And maybe the veterinary world is a place to begin because there is so much money and so much research on the different infections that, that these animals do get that there, maybe that is a place to begin. Yes, absolutely. We should cooperate uh, with veterinarians, also with universities, but what we need absolutely is science, science, science. We need to convince uh, universities that chronic Lyme can exist and that it's their job to do studies now on it, and then we have to convince them that we have chronic multiple infections. And speaking of chronic multiple infections, what do you see effective against biofilms? Yes, biofilms. I was involved in scientific work, in vitro studies with the University from Uvascular with Professor Gilbert. Uh, I did two papers on it with her together, and we found uh, that Borrelia in vitro studies, um, that Borrelia is doing biofilms, but that's not the main issue. The main problem are the pleomorphic forms. So um, Borrelia is uh, very variable um, bacteria, and it can move into... Can, uh, macrophages and it can survive macrophages. Uh, macrophages cannot destroy them um, by the SNPs, by some kinds uh, of Borrelia. They survive also the attack of macrophages. But biofilms are an issue. I, I think uh, biofilms should be treated because the first studies in vivo in animal models by Eva Sharpie also showed uh, that biofilms in vivo are possible in, in rat and mice models. So uh, we should treat. And I know three different uh, kind of treatment. One is uh, lumprokinase, the other is natokinase, and the other is uh, serapeptase. So I think if a patient can tolerate this, why not to add this against possible biofilms? And will you speak more about, you talked about the max, some macrophages are not able to destroy the Borrelia. And is that a mechanism that Borrelia uses to move throughout the body then? Yeah, macrophages can transport it. Um, We know that, for example, chlamydia, chlamydia pneumonia is transported by, we name it a passive transport mechanism, by macrophages into spinal fluid. That's possible. We know that. Um, why not for Borrelia? But don't forget Borrelia is an active uh, moving pathogen, an active moving bacteria, whereas chlamydia pneumonia is not. So I think it has also uh, the ability to uh, move back into uh, normal uh, spirochete and then to move out from the macrophage somewhere in some parts of the body. So it uses passive transport mechanisms and also active. So that means we might find it in places we wouldn't ordinarily expect. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, it's very fast. It's, um, if you know this bullsarish can uh, be within a few hours or some days, very slowly. Uh, it can be also some weeks. Uh, so borrelia can move slowly, but if the immune system is very weak, it and or uh, the tick uh, is uh, biting into a, a lymph lymphatic system somewhere in into um, some parts of it, then it can immediately move into your body. And then patients have, for example, summer flu after tick bite, but they don't know that this is really a traumatic infection, systemic infection with Borrelia burgdorferi spreading around the body. It's a septical process then. So 
would where the tick bites matter on whether they see the the rash or not? Do you think is that possible? Um, yeah, we we have seen that just fifty percent have bullseye rashes or forty percent. This depends also um, on the subspecies of Borrelia. I know that you in America you ignore. Uh, the Gariniae, which makes neurological problems, uh, but uh, in Europe we have a lot of Gariniae, and these patients, they all don't have pulsar rashes because it's, uh, uh, this uh, subspecies of Borrelia doesn't like the skin, it likes the nerve system. Ah. And w- what's the spelling of that subspecies? Because you're right, we ignored it. Gariniae. Gariniae. Okay. Thank you. It makes a lot of neuroborreliosis, and um, I'm convinced you have it in America. If not, uh, somebody will bring it to you by some pets. It's no problem. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's funny. I, I have a patient now who I just uh, referred out to Stram, and she has yeah, almost exclusively neurological and immunological symptoms. And I, th- that you bring that up, I'm thinking, because her, her Western blot was uh, only positive for the flagella uh, and, and very inconclusive for the rest of the Lyme disease so, or the borreliosis. So I'm, I'm really wondering if she doesn't have this subspecies uh, because her, her neurological symptoms are really severe. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, there's one point in USA, you're not specialized to Garinii subspecies, so it's not, uh, the antigen is not in your test systems in USA. So these patients are really interesting to test it with European test systems because our antibody test systems are based on Garinii subspecies. Very interesting. How many subspecies and are there scientifically, and then how many do you think are out there? Like, what's your opinion? Actually, we know that there are eight different uh, pathogens, subspecies. It's um, the Sensostrictor, originally from USA. We have it also in Europe. Gariniae, Afceliae, Lusitania, Spielmanii, Bavariense, and uh, uh, we have eight, actually. I know I cannot remember the other two, but um, worldwide we have a lot of um, subspecies which are not identified yet, and also we have a lot of subspecies which are not pathogens, which don't do anything. So not uh, all Borrelia subspecies uh, makes you sick, uh, but we know that the main issue actually, uh, oh, sorry, I forgot the Mayamoto, but Mayamoto, um, it doesn't belong to Borrelia burgdorferi uh, complex. It belongs uh, to Mayamoto, which is a different Borrelia uh, sub- a kind or subspecies you want to name. What we are talking about is uh, Borrelia burgdorferi complex. We look for the complexity of these three main subspecies, actually. And, yeah, that's also a good question. If we cover by our test systems all different subspecies, what I know, we don't have antibody testing against Miyamoto. We don't have it in routine labs. And uh, we cannot detect it by indirect other subspecies. It's not possible. There's still a lot of work to be done, yeah? Yes, there uh, will come a new test system I can announce now. It's named TICPLEX, and TICPLEX, it's also from Finnish University. 
it was a project from Finnish authorities and university project, and this will be a revolution in uh, finding out top modern Borrelia antigens. I'm not allowed to say which ones. It will start in three to four weeks. We have this test for all over the world. And then you will see that we will find out much more positive antibodies than the old-fashioned Western blots. I think as my opinion, as this testing progresses with this new Finnish test, with the other new tests in the pipeline, that we will see an explosion of detection, not an explosion of the the disease itself, but just an explosion of the detection of it, and it will yes. it will catch yes. a lot of people's attention. Yes, and we will take away patients from rheumatologists, yes. from psychiatric hospitals, yes. also from Alzheimer's disease uh, clinics. Um, we will see that the science will go more into the world of chronic multiple infections and also vector-borne diseases. It's not just the tick. You know, we have a lot of vectors and uh, the environment is changing, the heating up of the earth and all these problems with new vectors coming, malaria is coming, uh, scorpions are coming to Germany. We had today the story of a scorpion in Hamburg from Zahara. <laughs> we don't know how it came into a hotel. A guest was bitten by that. So um, people are traveling around the world. There's more out activities, yes, yes. But I think uh, the rheumatologists, they will lose a lot of patients uh, up to uh, onto the um, uh, GPs who cares for chronic Lyme disease and who accept chronic Lyme disease, so uh, they will lose patients. So it's a market. Medicine is a market and there's a lot of movement in it. So a rheumatologist is not interested in chronic Lyme disease because he's interested in fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis as an example or neurologists, they want to defeat uh, the multiple sclerosis, which is just a syndrome. It's uh, it's no clear uh, condition for patients. You know, it's no definition. It's just some symptoms, description of symptoms, nothing else, and some uh, white spots in the brain, but that can whatever you want. Uh, so they will lose patients, you know, and so they try to defeat now their fields and also their money. Right. It's going to be an interesting few years. Now, in it's a fight. It's, it's really a fight in yes. between colleagues, yes. It, Absolutely. It, it really will be. We have locally... No, we, ha- no, we have it. Sorry to interrupt. We have that fight. Yeah, we have we, that fight, right. We, we have that going on here locally. There's a rheumatologist who, who hosts uh, yes. about Lyme disease, and his first statement in his talk is, there is no chronic Lyme disease. Uh, you have yes. post-Lyme syndrome, and it's arthritis-type, and you should be seeing me and not an infectious disease person. And But even the infectious disease people here locally for the most part are pretty useless because they're following the guidelines. You do need to yeah. see somebody like Dr. Stram or like you. Yeah, we have, we have solutions for the patients, the others not. It's, it's so true. Now, in terms of the research that you're reading, who's, who's doing interesting research around the world? Because that... Yeah, that two names spontaneously, I would say that, um, or three names. Uh, one is Dr. Sang. He, uh, Sang, he's doing, and I think also he, he uh, is working together with Horowitz, uh, with Dapsone, with uh, antibiotic resistance, with new antibiotics. That's a great work he's doing in vitro studies, maybe now in vivo studies. 
Dr. Sang is his name, and the other is Eva Sapi uh, in uh, New Haven. She's doing a lot of basic research, biofilms, and also pleomorphic forms. That's a great job, and also uh, antibiotic resistances. And also uh, in Europe, I would say Professor Gilbert is our leading uh, scientist here in, in Finland. She's Canadian originally, um, but she's teaching uh, immunology and uh, biochemistry also in Finland. And I think it's very important that um, this very restricted field of scientists, uh, maybe have some more, don't want to forget somebody, but we are talking about maybe millions of patients and we are talking about three or four scientists or five, and that's ridiculous. It is. We're at the very beginning of this field of research. You, you are. No, it's five. No, it's five minutes to twelve. Believe me. <laughs> yes. It's really five minutes to twelve. Yes. Nice. We cannot wait any longer. So uh, we have a good action. We had a good action in London. Yeah. There's now investigation of fifty members of parliament. They have signed uh, for a group now caring for science and bring some light into the darkness of these so-called guidelines or whatever you want to name that. Right. Here, there's. We keep butting our heads against the wall here. There are many activists here, and they're they're trying to tear down this wall with their fingernails at this point. And there's some progress, there's some light, there's Dr. Shapi, there's some other uh, yeah. people who do have some access into the inner workings of, of the guidelines, the IDSA. But it's such, you know, it's such slow progress, and then my hope is it'll change, it'll be a sea change uh, very quickly, and then the authorities will say, well, we knew this all along. You know, yeah, but we are, we are in line fight, you know. Mm-hmm. We have the, the lobbyistic structures everywhere and also in Berlin. The main lobbyistic structures are the pharmacies, 100%. So if you say we don't need painkillers any longer, we need maybe some other remedies, <laughs> some antibiotics, or some aesthetics. This is a big market. Uh, there's a lot of working places behind it. Hmm? Yeah. You think about that story. And I think in America, it's exactly the same. And we have the laboratory story, you know, the big laboratories like Quest. And so they live from all this ELISA and the test producers live. Medicine is a market. It's, it's a market. But uh, it's no, 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 not to accept. We cannot accept that patients are suffering by that. That's not ethical, that's unethical, that's breaking the all Hippocratic oath. And I think that's a bad thing if it really happens with that. And uh, I know that's a lot of lobbyism behind that, but on the other hand, uh, I'm a doctor, I have to be honest, I have to follow my rules, I have to care for my patients. That's what I have to do, and Dr. Strand is doing the same. Yes, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, no, thank you but that you do some explanations for and uh, your engagement. I, I think it's minority. It's like da- David against Goliath, you name it. Huh? Yes, it is absolutely like that. Dr. Schwartz. Yeah, but we are, we are changing the world. We will change the world. We have to change it. And I see daily uh, how happy patients are all over around the world when they get some explanation for the symptoms and that you can help them. You know, that's, that's so satisfying being a doctor. And therefore, my life uh, is completely to care for that field. And I cannot change that. Otherwise, I would, uh, lie. <laughs> I would lie and I have to stop my job. Yes. Thank you so much. I understand. Thank you for your time. You've been very generous. Is uh, You summed it up beautifully philosophically. I think that was our third Stein of beer. 
<laughs> is there anything else you'd like to say to to leave with uh, your contact information again or anything like that? Yes, uh, I have a laboratory here in Augsburg. It's in Germany. It's near Munich. And patients are our doctors. I, I want to aim not the patient. I want to aim the doctors, the therapists, to discuss with them, doing some services, help them, explain them. Um, it's not Stone Age. We have some Stone Age countries in the world uh, who are back, like you named it, Ireland. I don't think Ireland is so back, but we have some other countries uh, much more back in the world. But um, we are all caring for the patients and that's uh, our fate and if you are honest working therapist please care for the patient take the patient honest don't send the patient to psychiatric hospitals the patients are telling you the truth you need time for the patients you have to take the patient serious and don't laugh at the patient don't don't give antidepressants please look for the reasons please please take patients serious that's the main uh, the main message thank you Thank you very much. This was a fascinating interview. I really admire how he recognizes the need to not only diagnose Borrelia burgdorferi, but also to di- the need to diagnose the, the multiple other co-infections that go along with Lyme disease. You know, that issue comes up again and again and again. We say Lyme disease in this community, and we mean Lyme disease, heavy metal exposure, gut dysbiosis, viral infections, parasitic infections. Did we say mold? Mold exposure, other toxicity, genetic variants. So we mean this whole male you. How's that for a SAT word? (laughs) This whole big soup this stew of conditions that overlap and influence one another and seem to get triggered by an infection and or the these in, uh, conditions allow an infection to get hold and take hold and take over. In fact, the Chinese call these infections invasions, uh, being possessed. Uh, and I think that's not a bad way of thinking about it is that in these conditions, the bacteria actually possess us as opposed to just hanging out. Because, I mean, let's face it, we've got bacteria and virus and mold in us all the time, and they're not running the show. We are. However, if things pile up to a degree, all of a sudden, we are the one who's possessed. We become the carrier and the bacteria is the one mostly in charge and not us. And I know many of you feel that way. It's like you're not in control of your energy. You're not in control. In this case right now, my body, like my right arm doesn't move. And sometimes we're not in control of our thinking or our thoughts and emotions. And it makes for a very interesting, ha, 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 in quotes, rough ride. It makes it for a really rough roller coaster ride through our healing journey. So when we have somebody like Dr. Schwartzbein, Schwartzbach, excuse me, who's pointing the way, I think it's important that we listen to him and we spread his word as far as people will listen and then in some cases make people listen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that reminds me of our interviews with Dr. Shoppy. She's another person who... Yeah, she's another person who researches Borrelia burgdorferi, and we have had two interviews with her. Uh, It's back in episode number 78 and number 37, if you want to 
If you want to check her out, she's got some great things to say about how the Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria works. Dr. Shappies and her lab and her lab partners are doing very, very interesting work. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, we'd appreciate it if you would support our efforts by subscribing. Go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you will see the subscribe button under the featured episode. Yes, and let me make a little extra appeal here is my arm isn't working so I can't do my day job which is acupuncture so this is a sympathy plea if you've been thinking about subscribing now this would be a really good time to do it (laughs) because we're laughing right now but my income has all of a sudden gone to near zero so I would appreciate it if you take a look there are three levels four dollar level the eight dollar level and twelve dollar a month it's a very small amount you can start up and cancel at any time and every little bit helps so just going over to limeninjaradio.com and you will see the subscribe button and i'll take you to a paypal page and walk you through the process of uh, making a monthly uh, subscription yeah payment thank you very much And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast could not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Some people wear Superman pajamas. Superman wears ninja pajamas. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.